You are listening to National Security Law Today. How safe is the United States government from cyber attacks? And what about the U.S. economy? If private companies won't share information about hacks and thefts, how can we ever know what the real threat is? How many billions of dollars of intellectual property, trade secrets, and research and development have we already lost? And how can we improve national security if that cyber threat is bigger than we've been told? Of course, we have an amazing woman in national security law here to help us understand the scope of the problem and to discuss the latest bombshell commission report to hit American consciousness. Right. The Cyberspace Solarium Commission report drops today, March 11th. Um, I think that you should liken this to sort of a bigger, more programmatic uh, report than the original 9-11 Review Commission report, in my opinion. And our guest tonight is Suzanne Spaulding, whose resume is just breathtaking in the area of national security law. And she is a just walking evidence of the fact that glass ceilings were meant to be shattered hard. And uh, careful listeners will remember that we had Suzanne Spaulding on in one of our earliest podcasts, so we're very excited to welcome her back. Welcome to National Security Law Today, the podcast of the American Bar Association Standing Committee on Law and National Security. As we've said, our guest is Suzanne Spaulding, and among other things, she is currently a senior advisor at CSIS, the Center for Strategic and International Studies, and she served as the Undersecretary for the National Protection and Programs Directorate at the Department of Homeland Security. I am Nicole. I'm Elisa. And I'm Yvette. Suzanne, thanks so much for joining us. Let's start with the basics. How was the commission formed and what was the remit? First, let me say how happy I am to be back with all of you wonderful women who do this great podcast. It's a real honor uh, to be uh, back here again. And I very much appreciate the opportunity to talk about the work of the commission. The commission came about uh, as a result of a provision in the National Defense Authorization Act last year, and the, uh, it was really the brainchild of a couple members, Mike Gallagher in the House, who was our co-chair, along with Angus King, and, and Senator Sass in the Senate, uh, both of whom were looking back to uh, an earlier solarium. So a lot of people are confused by the name, the Cyberspace Solarium Commission, but the solarium is a reference really to a room in the White House, a solarium, a sunroom in the White House where Eisenhower, President, then President Eisenhower, liked to have meetings. And the specific reference is to a meeting that he had with his senior national security team months after Stalin died in 1953. And uh, he knew this was a potential pivot point. Uh, we needed to have a coherent strategic approach to Russia, the Soviet Union going forward. And he pulled his team together and realized there was a lot of incoherence or at least disagreements in their various uh, recommended approaches. Uh, so he, he put together this process. He had them go back and report back to him. And out of that really grew this, uh, what was then known as the new look and, and what became our containment policy. So it has often been held up by historians as a you know really uh, a, a excellent way to to develop a strategic approach to a challenge, and that's where the name came from. So this commission was unique in a number of ways. Uh, primarily, its composition. We had not only your usual kind of bring in some experts on the issue, 
Uh, there were six of us from the outside, and I will, I will go through that list. But we had four members of Congress, bipartisan and bicameral, so two from the House and two from the Senate, Democrat and Republican. The leadership were, was a House member, Republican House member, Mike Gallagher, and an independent who caucuses with the Democrats, Senator Angus King. Uh, they, we also had what was really unique was four members of the executive branch who were commissioners. And I've been involved with a lot of commissions, and I've never seen that. Uh, so we had the uh, uh, somebody from ODNI, the Office of the Director of National Intelligence, uh, the Deputy Director, actually, the Deputy Secretary of Defense, the Director of FBI, uh, and the Deputy Director of the Home, of Department of Homeland Security. And and that really was a very valuable uh, group, uh, you know, mix of folks. In addition to the six outsiders, that included me. Frank Salufo, who's uh, with Auburn University and a real expert in cybersecurity. Tom Fanning, who was our private sector representative, who is the CEO of Southern Company, the largest electricity company in the country. Chris Inglis, who used to be at the National Security Agency and is now a distinguished professor at the Naval Academy. And uh, Patrick Murphy, former member of Congress, who's, uh, uh, I believe, a, a professor at the, but it's certainly involved with the, um, West Point uh, and uh, formerly in the administration as well. And Samantha Ravitch, uh, who heads a, a project at the Foundation for the Defense of Democracy and is a former DOD uh, official. Um, and those were the six outsiders. Wow, so that is a very distinguished group, a lot of firepower there. Uh, can you talk to us about the process that was used by the commission to actually study this very wide-ranging problem of cybersecurity that you were tasked with tackling in the NDAA. Yes, so we started uh, with some meetings where we brought in some outside experts, a pretty uh, classic way for commissions to proceed. Uh, but these experts that we brought in were really focused on deterrence, uh, how to define deterrence, um, did we think deterrence was possible in cyberspace, uh, because the task for the commission uh, was to look at a strategic approach for uh, uh, achieving uh, national security objectives in cyberspace. And being in the National Defense Authorization Act, of course, the focus was on primarily on nation-state adversaries. So we had some very interesting meetings uh, early on, and the commissioners pretty quickly came to consensus that we believed that deterrence was possible in cyberspace, uh, but that we were failing at it, and particularly failing to deter activity below, however you might define it, a use of force threshold, right? So, so the very sort of serious uh, kind of catastrophic cyber events we haven't seen, and you might conclude that we have succeeded in deterring that kind of cyber activity, but whether you agree with that deterrence or not, we clearly have not been successful at deterring the kind of day-to-day -day activities that, we're, that we see uh, all the time. We uh, decided, though, that we, did, we believe that deterrence is possible. So the strategic approach that we recommended is a layered deterrence. And we looked at not just how you often think about deterrence, which is imposing consequences, where we very quickly concluded we haven't been doing nearly enough, right? And everybody sort of agrees you've got to impose consequences to change your adversary's behavior. 
But it's more than that. It's also denying the benefits. So you want to impose costs and deny benefits. You're altering your adversary's cost-benefit analysis in terms of what tools they want to use to achieve their strategic objectives. And cyber activity is one tool to achieve a broader objective. So a big part of the Commission's report was focused on denying the benefits that adversaries can hope to achieve. And the process we used was to um, come up with, a, with an approach, six pillars, under which we grouped uh, over 75 recommendations. That's a lot of it recommendations. Is, but that's, you know, that's a way forward. Can we just talk a little bit about some of those recommendations and the six pillars just broadly? Absolutely. So within this overarching layered deterrence, uh, using all of our instruments of power, to both uh, impose costs and deny benefits, we created these six pillars. The first one is, is, is government reform. So um, I will say, while it is the first thing in the report, it is the last thing that we reached for in our meetings, interestingly enough. Uh, a lot of folks automatically reach for the wiring diagram to solve these challenges, and our sense was that that was, in some ways, the least important part of what we were going to do, but it is an essential element. Um, and on the uh, U.S. government organization, that first pillar, one of the issues that of course first came up is should we pull all the cybersecurity stuff together and create a Department of Cybersecurity? And I have been on record for quite some time now as being a staunch uh, opponent of the idea of a Department of Cybersecurity, and I was really pleased to see that we pretty quickly reached consensus um, around the idea that that you know that was not the approach we were going to recommend. And I, I should hasten to add that not every commissioner agrees with every single recommendation exactly as it was written in the report, but we all endorse the report uh, in, in its uh, entirety. Uh, the executive branch, of course, couldn't take a formal position. But all the rest of the commissioners very much endorsed the, the overall report uh, and decided that it was worth making compromises on some issues. Well, let's like uh, put a pin in your in going down the pillars because I'd love for people who are you know new to this area to understand why we wouldn't want to build uh, you know stand up a new department, right? Because after 9/11, we stood up the Department of Homeland Security. You know, there's critics that say yes, no, good, bad, why wouldn't you endorse um, a Department of Cybersecurity? So just as cyber, uh, the, you know, the benefits of the networked world uh, impact every aspect of our lives, it impacts every aspect of government and of our critical functions, uh, and it's just really permeates too many places and things to be all pulled together into one organization. And particularly if you look at the best way forward in terms of managing the risk from malicious cyber activity, it is going to require, an, on the deny benefits side of the house, an expertise in those businesses that are being impacted, whether it's government functions or it's private sector functions uh, that we talk about as critical infrastructure. Mitigating the consequences of malicious cyber activity, understanding the consequences so that you can assess the risk and then figuring out how you would mitigate those consequences requires that you understand how the electric grid works, 
how our water system is set up, how our financial services system works, what are the key nodes there, what are the key functions that the disruption of which would have a significant impact. That is not an expertise of our IT specialists. No, and it can't be ex exported and somehow given to some separate agency, right? These are niche, well-understood functions uh, by the people who populate those agencies and work there. That's exactly right. And my worry, so, so the expertise, bringing the expertise into a Department of Cybersecurity, I think would be impossible, that kind of broad sector expertise that you need. Uh, and I also think it would become very technical very fast. And again, I think if we put, uh, if we try to address the challenge of malicious cyber activity through the technology lens only, we're going to fail. So you're in favor of a more holistic approach. Exactly. Okay. So having said that, now we've, you know, so you accept that you're not going to be able to bring it all into one place. It's going to be spread out. You need a way to coordinate that. You need a way to have to bring some coherence to that in a strategic approach. Uh, a way to resolve interagency disputes, a way to establish priorities, to determine, you know, allocation of resources, and that really has to be done in the White House. And that's our conclusion. Uh, and so there is a, rep uh, a recommendation for a national cyber director that would be located in the White House but would be confirmed by the Senate. And the model really for that is kind of think U.S. Trade Representative, right? Well, and the USTR has a, a broad mandate too, but um, how would that be different from the cyber czar that was in the last administration and was terminated by the current administration? Right. So it's not a czar. We're very quick to point out. We're really not recommending a, a czar, but this is somebody who would have the wherewithal to provide some coherence to these efforts that are inevitably spread out and that include the private sector and state, local, territorial, and tribal governments, as well as the federal government. Um, it would be more robust than what was in the uh, White House. Um, I, we, we had a lot of discussions and some really, not everyone agreed on, you know, should it be Senate confirmed uh, or should it be more a creature of the NSC, for example. That's a big um, issue. Uh, and we ultimately concluded that in order to really have the whole of society uh, approach that would need to bring, that Senate confirmation was an important element of that and to have the trust of Congress, for example. Um, and we also concluded that the limitations that are imposed on White House staff that has to be so tiny uh, would not uh, allow this individual to have the wherewithal that they need to do the kind of coordinating function. Now, the objective is not to have something as large as ODNI. We're not talking about an ODNI model, but something very, you know, lean. Uh, but that does have the wherewithal to coordinate this activity. So and can tap into those areas of expertise that's sprinkled around the government. Exactly. Yeah. So we've made it through one pillar. Do you want to? Do you want to expound uh, on the other pillars? Yeah. So, so I before we even leave this pillar, the other piece, of course, was looking at Congress, uh, and we do have some other organizational recommendations for the executive branch. Uh, but then we also looked at Congress. Similarly, it cuts across a lot of committees. The recommendation is that there be a single committee in each in the House and in the Senate. So two committees, but one in each, uh, to. Uh, provide a strategic, coherent approach to cybersecurity. So those were the t two key 
most important government recommendations. The other pillars actually track well with traditional risk management uh, notions of looking at threat, vulnerability, and consequence, and, and mitigating across all three. Um, so two of the pillars go to imposing costs and on the, you know, the threat, so mitigating the threat. The one pillar is using all of our instruments of military power effectively, all of our instruments of national power to impose consequences. Uh, and another goes to norms, right? Making sure that we have uh, devoted the resources and the expertise necessary to, to compete in international standards bodies and international norms building so that we are uh, able to advocate for norms that are consistent with our values. Uh, and the interests that we have, but continue to develop norms and build consensus around norms as well as standards and capacity for law enforcement. Um, you need to have the norms and the laws in place in order to impose costs. Right? You need to have clearly defined acceptable uh, boundaries for activity uh, if you're going to have a strong international consensus around imposing norms. So those two around threats the vulnerabilities piece is really addressed by the pillar uh, where we talk about shaping the ecosystem to improve cybersecurity. So a number of recommendations about how can we try to um, make sure that the things that are put out there in the marketplace are more secure. And we start by looking at market-driven. How can we make the market more efficient at driving that? So number of recommendations around cyber insurance, which is an effective player in the marketplace, on informing consumers, so a kind of labeling authority that would allow consumers, once we've educated them to how important it is to purchase more secure devices, to be able to decide which device is going to provide me with greater privacy protections, with greater uh, security against malicious activity. Um, uh, so a number of recommendations around making the ecosystem more secure. And then the resilience piece, which is about mitigating consequences. So there's a whole set of recommendations about how we build up our national resilience. Uh, and again, consistent with what we all are, have learned over the years with regard to cybersecurity, which is you can't assume you're going to prevent everything. And you've got to focus on then on the consequences and how do you identify the most significant consequences and what are all the ways you mitigate those. And sometimes it's going to have nothing to do with technology. We talk about analog ways of mitigating consequences. Think paper ballots. Right? You know, I have a question for you, Suzanne, because this, uh, this is so fascinating to me. There has been so much discourse lately in making people liable uh, for data breaches and loss of information uh, and making some serious consequences for that when they don't download patches, when they don't maintain their cybersecurity, when they fail to give notice to individuals uh, whose information may have been, you know, sent to the dark web. Um, how did you guys address that? Yeah, so, so again, we reached for market uh, first, but, but there are times when the market is simply not going to accomplish what you need to accomplish. And we all know that right now the market is failing. Uh, to, to uh, ensure greater attention to cybersecurity. But particularly in places where you've got regulated industries, for example, the market already is not working in those uh, in industries because we've altered that equation. But also places where the externalities exceed what a business would normally be expected, where you could ever make the return on investment case, for example. Um, where public health and safety is a national interest. 
And so what we did in those instances is to look at what were the what, what role could incentives play, i.e. carrots, to get mm-hmm. people to do more, and then where do we really need to think seriously about imposing requirements? And with those requirements comes obviously failure to meet those requirements, a liability. And really what we tried to look at is who is in the best position? I always used to talk about it as comparative advantage. Who's in the best position to take the action that needs to be taken to increase the the you know security or resilience that we're looking for? And in those cases, so one instance is final goods assemblers. Um, the the commission's view was they're in the right they're the they're the right place to put the requirement to not put things out into the marketplace with known vulnerabilities. So let's let's break that down for listeners who may not understand exactly what we're saying here. If somebody's going to sell you a cellular phone and it has in it uh, a chip that has some embedded vulnerability in it, then the responsibility would be with the company selling you that phone. Exactly. And so they may or may not be in a position to patch or come up with the patch for that vulnerability in the chip, but they are in a position to go to their vendor who sold them that chip and say, you know, we know there's a there's a known vulnerability in here. Have you patched it? And, you know, make sure that that's done. Okay. And then you mentioned penalties. Um, there have been some penalties that have been tried against malicious state actors, and those were sanctions, right, under the International Economic Emergency Powers Act. How did you feel about the efficacy of that um, as a deterrent? Not much of one. <laughs> uh, well... What you know, what we say in the report, and what I think we've we've learned is, when you're looking at deterrence uh, through imposing costs, you really have to look actor by actor. Uh, different actors are going to be motivated and uh, deterred by different things. So you've got to understand what is their strategic goal they're trying to achieve. How central is malicious cyber activity to achieving that goal? How readily could they move to a different mechanism to achieve that goal? And you've got to anticipate that, too, because ultimately what you're trying to do is not just deter malicious cyber activity, but to preserve U.S. national interests. Um, And so, for example, the deal that we uh, negotiated with China on not using cyber means to steal intellectual property to give their businesses competitive advantage was a very important step. But you have to be aware that China is probably not going to stop having an interest in achieving intellect, getting in, stealing intellectual property, and they may just go to other means, which in fact they did. Um, so you've got to look case by case at, e- at each actor at what's going to be effective. And so for countries that are um, very, uh, you know, that are in in uh, desperate straits economically, sanctions are are likely to have a significant impact, particularly if you can make them multilateral. countries where we've already imposed so many sanctions that there's very little economic leverage left, you're going to have to come up with something else. And so one of the things we focused on is the DOD concept of defend forward, which is a notion of, you know, we're not going to sit back and wait to be impacted. We're going to go out and, and engage in what they call persistent engagement, which is a kind of daily friction with the adversary. We're going to be out there engaging with them. Um, it'll often be in the space between us and them, uh, which is often going to be our allied countries. And so we do talk in there about the importance of making sure that we have robust consultation 
and conversations with our allies about this. Our allies are a great source of strength, so we don't want to engage in activity that, that um, really erodes those relationships. But it is important to be out there on a daily kind of basis challenging the adversary and taking down their infrastructure that they use or exposing the infrastructure that they use so that they have to constantly be coming up with new infrastructure for carrying out their attacks, for example. So we have to really use all of our instruments of power. And we did, uh, we did previously have Adam Hickey on the podcast some time back. Um, and he talked about the criminal option, but I imagine you've found that the criminal option just comes too late. The data is gone. The, the intellectual property is not going to come back to that small, wonderful company in Pennsylvania where it was originally conceived. Um, it's just after the fact. Is, is that right? Well, that's often true. Um, but we did talk about the law enforcement option, and FBI, of course, was present at all of our meetings and, and contributed to the conversation. So there is a recommendation for beefing up their overseas capacity. Uh, because I, I do think the law enforcement approach can have an impact on individuals. And the extensive use of proxies of private contractors, if you will, by some nation states uh, can be, I think, impacted. You know, their um, enthusiasm for uh, being used by nation states can be dampened if there really is robust law enforcement and they have some fear that they may not be able to visit that villa on the right. in the south of France. Or that uh, red notice on Interpol will exactly. result in their being arrested. Right, even but, if they are uh, flying their own private helicopter. There's but, a, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> but there are limitations to the law enforcement option because, you know, Robert Mueller indicted 12 Russian co-conspirators for hacking and we are not likely to see them uh, come to American courts. So what are the other uh, kinds of um, approaches that the government is going to, or you, that you hope the government will take as a result of this report? Yeah. Um, so again, I, I've talked through the, you know, some of the imposed costs, uh, things that we looked at, and the development of norms. I, I, I really do think that effort needs to continue. We had made some progress some years ago, and then things have stalled. I think we need to continue to do that, and we need to have a more robust presence uh, in those so that we can have an international approach to some of these uh, consequences that we impose. But there is a real limit to the degree to which we are going to solve this challenge by imposing consequences. I mean, there, I will say there was an initial, our initial meetings, again, there was a thirst for punching the adversary in the nose, you know, punching back. We're not imposing consequences. We're just letting these things happen. You do quickly realize there's a limit to what you can do in that realm. And so, therefore, the there's a what you'll see in the report, as I say, a huge emphasis on denying benefits uh, as a way of deterring. We've got to assume we're only going to be able to accomplish so much in terms of getting the adversary to fear taking action. Uh, but there's more that we think we can accomplish in getting the adversary to weigh the cost. So you're now raising the cost and you're lowering the benefits. And that combination, you know, I'm going to, yes, I could continue to pursue this. My costs have been raised because I have to be stealthier so I don't get caught. Uh, they've improved the ecosystem, so it's, I have to develop new tools. And when I finally do get through, my, the benefits, I can't actually shut down the grid because they've put in these analog breakers that you know, prevent a cascade, cascading consequences from what I can do remotely, 
packing in. Um, they have established paper ballots, so when I, and they've got paper uh, polling books at all the voting stations, so when I hack into the voter registration database to create disruption on election day, they've limited my ability to really have a huge impact, for example. So that would, and removing financial incentives or success incentives are huge, but at the end of that, one of the things I think um, maybe a cultural issue in some of these nation states is status from achieving these ends, right? I don't know that we can ever eliminate that. Did that ever enter your conversation that, you know, if you do this successfully, you rise to whatever level in the party or your family gets a sort of a, that's pretty hard. We, that's not something we can really well, tackle. Well, again, I think if this goes back, you know, to some degree to the law enforcement angle and, and the sanctions, but um, calling individuals out by name and putting them at risk uh, limiting their ability to travel uh, may, uh, again, perhaps counter some of the benefits of prestige from having accomplished some of this. I'm really interested in your um, recommendation regarding uh, um, establishing norms, right? Um, that w what are some of the ways that we can do that? I'm thinking like the UN, but, you know. The talent it, manual, it, it, you know, some of the. Sure, right. but these things take time, right? It takes a long time for customary international law to become law, right? For the, all of you intro to introduction, uh, to international law uh, scholars out there, right? It takes a long time for nation practice to be seen as an obligation rather than as, you know, uh, something that's nice to do. So how do we get those, those uh, norms into the, into the, global consciousness and, and to the point where people, where countries feel an obligation to respond to them. Yeah, so the work of the UN Special Governmental Group of Experts, uh, I think it was a, pointed to a useful path forward. Now, again, as I say, they, uh, it sort of stalled, and, and I, but I think it's an effort worth reinvigorating, uh, where countries came together and explicitly, so not just through practice, right, uh, but explicitly agreed on a set of peacetime norms. And I think while it's very difficult to distinguish between wartime and peacetime in cyberspace, uh, I still think that, that cyber is a tool that governments use. And, we, and, and, and while we may not be able to define precisely the line between use of force and things above and below that threshold, governments generally have some sense. Uh, which is why I think we have not seen, for example, destructive attacks on critical infrastructure um, that might injure on which public citizens rely. And that was the norm, the peacetime norm. I, I, I and I refer to peacetime norms because I think it's not clear to me, personally, that if you had a kinetic war, if you were actually in a, engaged in a conflict with a nation, that it's worse to, to remotely hack in and bring down the grid than it is to bomb uh, the, the substations to take down electricity in a country. Um, the uh, impact would be the same on the civilians. The military impact would be the same. The ability to, re to get that country up and running again once the war is concluded, for example, might be much, it might be much easier if, the, if it's a remote attack on the network than if you've got to rebuild physical, uh, the prospects for collateral damage may be less. So, you know, different conversation, longer conversation, but, <laughs> Indeed. Um, right. but I do think, uh, but I do think that the, that, uh, development of norms in peacetime, and I think, 
you know, critical infrastructure, a norm around not attacking critical infrastructure around, uh, upon which public citizens depend became a challenge to sustain in part because we all define critical infrastructure a little differently. So one of the smart things that has been undertaken um, uh, by Tim Maurer at the Carnegie uh, Endowment is... Friend uh, of the cast. Let me just say, <laughs> we've had him on the podcast. He's outstanding. Excellent. I'll go back and find that podcast, all of you, and you should listen to it. Um, but he's working with the financial services sector. Can we at least, we all globally depend upon the SWIFT system and, and the, you know, sustaining a uh, credible legitimate global financial system that works. Right. So and the ACH have, system and, right? and all of it. And even the if you were virtual currency, it would depend. Yeah. 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 So could we at least arrive on an agreement around a norm there? So I think there is there are ways to establish these norms beyond just customary international law or observed practice. Uh, in the press cover, uh, in the press coverage, one of the concerns about the process undertaken by the commission was that it did not include the tech industry. Why not, and is that a fair criticism? It's really not a fair criticism. Uh, the fact is that we did consult with the tech industry uh, in a number of ways. So I mentioned Tom Fanning, who was on the commission. He is not only the CEO of Southern Company; he is the chair of the Electricity Sector Coordinating Council, which is a private sector entity that interacts with the government, and I uh, co-chaired with the Deputy Secretary of Energy, the Government Coordinating Council for the Electricity Sector, and we met three or four times a year with 30 or 40 CEOs to, to work together on these issues. But he also started a tri-sector commission, which includes communications and financial services. Uh, and Tom was a interacted with the tri-sector and we had them in to brief the commission uh, including the comms sector we also talked the staff had a number of discussions with specifically cybersecurity firms uh, particularly as we looked at building security into the cyber ecosystem Michael Daniels who runs the cyber threat alliance now who was the cybersecurity coordinator in the last administration was one of our uh, close advisors and red team uh, participants. So there was actually a lot of interaction with the tech sector, with the IT sector, and with the cybersecurity providers community. And given sort of the, uh, with respect to the communications um, sector, I think importantly there, that included, it does include now um, internet-based communications as well which is really where it's going to be. So that does sound like it was a pretty pretty deep reach into uh, the tech sector. Well, what is the road ahead? Well, I mean, what, what is this thing gonna look like in an ideal situation? Um, I'm, I wanna hear something non-dystopic. <laughs> <laughs> well, the, so, so yeah, so the good news is, first of all, uh, everyone should be heartened by the fact that, that this commission was so bipartisan. And really what we all agreed is it was really nonpartisan. Uh, we had folks come in, I mean, we, all of the, uh, uh, the six of us from the outside were all appointed by the leadership in Congress uh, by either a Democrat or a Republican. But when you, if you came in and watched any commission meeting, and we had close to 30 meetings, um, you would not have been able to tell who around that table was a Democrat and who was a Republican. It was really a nonpartisan conversation. 
and this report is a consensus report. So that's the first thing I would say to be encouraged by. This issue should not be partisan, and, uh, and indeed it was not for us on the commission. The second thing is that we are not just putting out a bunch of uh, ideas to, for other people to go figure out how to implement. For every recommendation in the report where we say Congress should, where we're talking about changing laws, the staff is drafting legislation already. Uh, and we will very soon be coming out with legislative, specific legislation, legislative language for each of those recommendations. And, and that obviously required some more rigor on our part. We, we did not, as a commission, approve the draft legislation. But as they were working through the legislation, they would encounter, of course, issues, questions. Do you want to go this way or that way? And they would bring them back to us and we would answer them. So that provided a fair amount of specificity in our recommendations to guide the legislation. Has that ever happened before? I am not aware of any other commission that uh, sort of more or less coincident with dropping its report has provided the legislation. That's so, really exciting. Yeah, so not only do we have a jump start on that, but we have four members of Congress on both sides of the aisle and in both houses who are fully on board with this legislation and are ready to run with it and who sit on key committees. So, um, so I think there's a, you know, with all the dysfunction in Congress, you never know what you're going to be able to get through. But we're in a better position than almost any other commission that I know of for hitting the ground running. And then, of course, there's the executive branch, which every commission that I've been involved with, you work in secret. You come out one day suddenly and you spring this report on people and the executive branch gets it. They farm it out to all the agencies. They spend months reviewing it. By the time they come back together with their recommendations, the administration's over and it was yesterday's news and you move on, uh, start all over again. In this case, the executive branch has been at every meeting. They, they know exactly what drove these recommendations, how they came about, uh, and they often were very instrumental in informing them. So I think we have a jump start there as well. That sounds very promising. I guess one last thing I wanted to ask you, though, one of the things that I think is noteworthy about the original solarium uh, meetings held by Eisenhower was the proposal that there be public-private partnerships uh, really emerged in earnest the, for the first time in our um, modern history from, from that. Um, what did you see in terms of public-private partnerships? Uh, Thank you so much for asking that question because that is the pillar I always forget. There is a separate pillar on uh, operationalizing the public-private relationship. And I think the reason that I forget it is that I see it built in. To me, it's built into every one of the other pillars, right. uh, whether it's looking at your U.S. government structure to make sure that you have st a structure that the private sector can be folded into and can join, uh, to use Tom Fanning's word. He, you know, he said, we've got to move past uh, what we, the way we've talked about this as sharing um, or cooperating, to collaborating, to really joining in this effort. And so we did, we carved out a whole separate pillar and a series of recommendations to, to move forward in the government recognizing the private sector as really the supported command in many senses. And so for people who aren't familiar with DOD, you know, there are supporting commands that provide the what you know necessary support for the supported command which is undertaking the operations and what we recognized is the private sector is on the front lines 
and, and we don't just, that's not, that can't just be rhetorical. And if they are on the front lines, that means that we have to provide them with what they need to get the job done if we're asked for the things we're asking them to do. Um, and so one of the key things, again, is information. So not only do we have things like we've recommended a Bureau of Cyber Statistics that would gather information from across government and from the private sector, analyze it and disseminate it in useful ways. Think about the Bureau of Labor Statistics, right? That the private sector could really make use of, whether it is insurance companies for building kind of actuarial tables and, and building better products for the private sector, or the private sector itself assessing its risk and understanding where to allocate resources, to intelligence, providing them with the intelligence they need. And again, moving beyond the idea that, oh, if you happen to collect something that might be of interest to the private sector, figure out a way to get it to them, which is kind of where we are today and is important. And we're but, talking about classified information yeah, that's exactly. collected through some technique. Yep. That you've got to go beyond that to say, no, 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 we've got to uh, recognize that they need to be part of the requirements that go into saying to the intelligence community, this is the kind of information we want you to use your special techniques, sources, and methods to collect. This is the kind of information that the private sector really needs in order to effectively defend its networks uh, or understand what the consequences might be. And, and so how do we get that built into the process so that intelligence collectors go out and use their efforts as, as appropriate to collect that information and then put it in, in a way that we can promptly get it out to the private sector. So we look, so there are a number of recommendations that go to uh, folding them into the collection process, viewing them as a true customer of intelligence, revising the way we think about how we share intelligence with the private sector so that it's not just when they're a victim, doing what we call victim notification, hey, by the way, you've been hacked, uh, and not just getting them finally finished products that have a high level of confidence, but sharing things that might be, maybe there's a lower level of confidence, uh, but that might be important and that we're understanding that they will bring insights to that still developing intelligence analysis that can help both of us better understand what we're seeing and what the environment is. And again, that they are joined with us Wow, that sounds really amazing. Um, but it's, we've come to the end, I think. Suzanne, thank you so much for joining us tonight. It has been a pleasure to have you as always. Don't feel sorry about forgetting one of the pillars. I would note for our listeners, Suzanne did this entire thing with zero notes and not referring to the report once, which is something that I cannot do. So it's been a pleasure to have you and your dynamic brain and all your expertise here back with us again especially as we're celebrating the 19th Amendment by honoring 19 amazing women in national security uh, law. And we are delighted to have you be among those 19 great women. We identified you right away as we were brainstorming on this. And I want to thank you for your tireless service to national security for these many successful years. And we hope you come back soon. Uh, and join us because we always love having you on. Oh, it's such an honor to be part of this uh, 19, uh, honoring the 19th Amendment, and bravo to you for coming up with that concept, and it's always delightful to be with all of you. We will hyperlink the Salarian Commission's full report 
In the notes of the cast, as you know, listeners, we always recommend you actually read things for yourself and form real opinions based on a full presentation of facts, although Suzanne gave us an amazing entree uh, to it. So squeeze it in somewhere in your busy day. At the very least, read the executive summary. Uh, you can find links to the Black Letter Law and articles on today's topics at AmericanBard.org slash NatSecurity and in the notes to this podcast. We'll be back next week with more content for you. And remember to hit that subscribe button on your app of choice. Drop us a note at NationalSecurity at ABA.org or find and follow us on Twitter at ABANatSec or on Facebook. Give us your thoughts because we always welcome your feedback. See you next time on National Security Law Today. And as we always say, the attorneys hosting this podcast are here in their individual capacity and not on behalf of any agency or firm. See you next time. The views expressed on National Security Law Today have not been approved by the House of Delegates or the Board of Governors of the American Bar Association and accordingly should not be construed as representing ABA policy.